0: Hi, I'm David Peskovitz.
1: And I'm Mark Frauenfelder.
0: And you're listening to For Future Reference, a podcast from the Institute for the Future. In every episode of For Future Reference, we talk with scientists and engineers whose forward-thinking research has the potential to transform our lives over the coming decade. In today's episode of For Future
1: Reference, we're speaking to Joel Murphy, Joel is an instructor and an artist and a creator of kinetic sculptures, but his career took a different turn when he started working on biosensing devices. Typically, this kind of biosensing has been done only by institutions that can afford the delicate and expensive instrumentation used to pick up the very faint signals that a body transmits. But thanks to the maker movement and things like crowdfunding and the quantified self movement, Joel was able to create low-cost biosensing instruments. His first one was a pulse sensor, and then he went on to something even more ambitious, an open-source brain-computer interface. Uh, What I want you to do is just tell us your full name and what it is that you do.
2: My name is Joel Murphy, and I make open-source hardware Biosensing tools and uh, tools for science.
1: So, Joel, I uh, have been aware of your work for for quite a while. The the first thing that uh, brought me to your attention was the little heart sensor that you made for uh, microcontrollers like the Arduino and, and stuff like that. Could you talk a little bit about uh, about that project and your interest in in biosensing hardware?
2: Yeah, sure. So my um I'll just start off briefly by saying my background is in the visual arts, and I made uh, kinetic sculpture for a long time. So I come to uh, things like electronics, design, engineering, and uh, biosensing on a sort of a, from a sideways angle, if you will. Um, I taught for eight years uh, as a part-time faculty at Parsons, the New School of Design, in New York City. I taught physical computing there from 2006 to 2014 and sort of saw the rise of the, um, of course, the the Arduino and the open source hardware movement kind of erupt all around me during that time when I was teaching at Parsons. Um, And I really wanted to get into it. Um, The open hardware ethos really ties into my work as an artist kind of seamlessly um, and there was one year in 2011 when uh, both semesters we, we had a lot of students in my physical computing class that wanted to do uh, biofeedback in a project. Um, and there's some simple things you can do with galvanic skin response. Um, and there's a very simple circuit you can make if you know how to make circuits with an op amp. And you shine a LED into your fingertip. And the op-amp with the photodiode can see uh, or rather sense um, your pulse in kind of an analog waveform. And so I, you know, showed students the circuit, talked them through how to make it. But these are not, you know, engineering students. These are design students. And uh, there was a lot of uh, failing and, um, you know, projects that took way too long and never got finished. And so uh, after that year... Um, another teacher there and I, who's also a part timer, um, Yuri Gittman, we both were doing physical computing at Parsons, and we both had the same problem. And we thought, well, you know, damn it, if we can solve this problem, we'll have less crying students and more cool projects. So that summer of 2011, we spent about $250 and two months, came up with a working prototype for the pulse sensor, and ran a Kickstarter in September. Uh, which we lowballed at about 3K because we figured, well, you know, we want to be able to make this. We already had production lined up in China from uh, work that I had done with clients. I knew uh, of a contract manufacturing there. That I'd gotten quotes already for the whole thing. I had the whole thing set up. And we figured, man, if we can just make this thing and people who want it can have it, then we'll, you know, whatever, we'll wash our hands, we'll put some folding money in our pocket, and we'll move on to the next project. Um, We made $18,000 on that Kickstarter, and so we were basically Kickstarted by Kickstarter, and um, we're in a position now where as long as people keep buying them, we will keep making them.
1: That's great. And so are you actually still selling quite a few of these, these sensors today?
2: Yeah, we are. We are. We um we're selling between 8,000 and 10,000 units a year probably. As the call sensor.
0: So wow. what what do you think what, what do you think that people um want these for? Um, you know, what, what is the motivation for people to want to do this kind of biosensing?
2: Well, you know, it's interesting because we we I think and I think this is kind of a lesson in one angle of small startup entrepreneurship in the open hardware space. Um, we made a tool. We didn't make a finished thing. We didn't make a thing that is already done. You actually need an Arduino or something else with a microcontroller and an analog input in order to even use the thing. So, we're not, we're, we're definitely, you know, trying to target people who are developers, people who are, um, you know, after something. I think we get a lot of students, definitely, based on our sales, uh, you know, in the months you know, prior and during semesters, a lot of classes by our our tool. Um, uh, I know of a of handful of projects uh, that have happened in Burning Man that have been based around the pulse sensor. Um, uh, there's, you know, of course, there's a, there's a guy who made a dress for his girlfriend covered in LEDs and it blinks to a heartbeat, this kind of thing. Uh, but then there's also a lot of students who are studying biomedical engineering that are picking it up because it's a really low-cost tool that they can use to do a project with in their classes um, uh, or something like this, you know?
1: How how much does it cost?
2: The kit is $25, and it comes with a costume jewelry ear clip so that you can very easily hot glue it to that and clip it on your earlobe, which is a classic place for getting um, this type of signal. Uh, and there's also uh, a Velcro strap and a Velcro dot to, to put on your fingertip. So what, what we're looking for, the kind of tissue that's really responsive is um, uh, capillary tissue, so fingertips, earlobes. Uh, you know, your temple is a good place. Um, it's funny, too, because we, we came up with this thing in 2011 as a Kickstarter. We were shipping in 2012 in, in uh, January. And you know we have a green LED. We were really the first green LED pulse sensor on the market. And then what happens? iPhone comes out. Oh, they have got a heart rate sensor. Hmm, it has a green LED.
0: Huh.
2: <laughs> oh, I wonder know what that's all about. <laughs> um, so let, but, let me. Uh, so pu- putting. I just want to say, put, putting a sensor like this on your wrist is probably not the best place to get your pulse. Hmm.
0: So that that raises actually goes nicely into my next question which is it sounds like you didn't approach this from uh the mindset of of uh interest in biology but now perhaps you've developed
2: one Uh well I mean I I have I always have I think at in my heart I I make things in my uh, you know deep down I like to make cool stuff um and uh how this led to uh, OpenBCI and getting involved in doing more, um, you know, uh, electropotential measurements like EEG and EMG and ECG, making tools for this kind of biosensing. Um, It it happened because I was basically cold-called by an engineer who works for a company in New Hampshire called Criari, they are very well greased to get government contracts. that's what they do basically they're a design services or sorry engineering services company and they um they uh get contracts with Department of Defense and uh Navy and Army and all these they're you know, trying to help make better tools for you know for example protecting the hearing of someone who directs traffic on an aircraft carrier. And this engineer saw a call. It was a DARPA-funded call and was part of the Obama Brain Initiative back in 2012, the end of 2012. And for some reason, the program director for the DARPA solicitation said that it had to be a low-cost, high-quality EEG system for non-traditional users. And it was stipulated that it had to be open source. The idea was that if If we had tools that are powerful, that are affordable, that, you know, many, many, many people could purchase, you could crowdsource innovation in neuroscience. You could have people in their garage maybe asking questions that scientists wouldn't ask. So he actually happened to have a pulse sensor. And he said to himself, well, who do I know who does open source biosensing? Well, this guy does. And I get a call at the end of 2012. He asked me if I want to be on his team as a subcontractor, and I say "Yes," because I say yes to everything, how else are you going to do interesting stuff?
0: <laughs> so um, can you talk a little bit about what 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 the um, open BCI is, and and for, the, for, for listeners who may not know, BCI is brain computer interface, um, you know bridging the gap between our minds and our machines, essentially.
2: Yes, that's right. Open BCI stands for Open Brain Computer Interface and uh we are an open source hardware company and we make uh biosensing tools for measuring uh electropotentials bioelectrical potentials so this is eeg measuring brain waves through the scalp but also uh ecg measuring heart rate um and also emg which is electromyography where you can measure your the the electrical s- signals that your muscles uh put out when they're contracting uh, you can measure all of these signals with our tool. In, in this case, you know, as I described the pulse sensor earlier as as really a, a tool that's specifically available to do almost anything with. The OpenBCI platform is a little bit more of a finished thing. It has a very specific design. Uh, there's, I'm sure, there's a bunch of you know platforms that are open uh, hardware out there like this, um, but we are definitely geared towards. Biosensing. Now, that's not to say that you couldn't use OpenBCI to measure, you know, any teeny tiny, uh, voltage of potential on anything, for example. Um, but we're specifically, uh, gearing towards EEG, uh, as, and such. And, uh, most of our clients, most of the people who buy our product, um, are already in this space. So, We're selling to people who are neuroscience grad students or or whole classes um, or uh, computer science people, people into big data, uh, people who are trying to work on machine learning projects, um, and also people who are neurofeedback enthusiasts uh, because, you know, we're selling an, an affordable, powerful tool that people can use to do brain training or uh, you know neurofeedback for health and wellness or therapy or whatever it is
0: what are some of the other applications of this? I mean, I remember reading about um uh, de- uh, uh prosthetic devices um, artificial arms that could be controlled via um i guess it 's e m g the the muscle signals um and of course we 've also all seen the the cat the robotic cat ears that you can buy that that you know <laughs> yeah. that that wiggle i mean what are what are some of the applications that you've been seeing um uh, with your tool?
2: No one has co- yet come to the point, we haven't come to the point where someone's actually creating a product out of Open DCI yet. Um, most of what we see are uh, people doing research.
0: On on what?
2: Um, and everything from research that is designed to be assistive. Uh, you know, for example, there are folks who are unfortunately locked in with maybe Lou Gehrig's disease or, um, or uh, MS or something like this. As the disease progresses, people deteriorate and they're not able to, you know, move their eyes or blink their eyes in order to communicate. And so, um, BCI is sort of the next step of uh, trying to, you know, uh, give the person their whole their whole self that's locked in a, a route out to communicate. Um, and so we have people working using our technology to essentially say, yes, you can make a device that helps someone communicate. Um, uh, We have a couple of people that are working on uh, building interfaces for specific individuals with our tech on this route. Um, And then, uh, you know, we have – we participate in a lot of hackathons that are, you know, put on by organizations or schools, and, you know, folks are doing things like uh, concentration games to play, uh, you know, a tilt tilting marble mazes, you know, things like this. Um, so so it kind, of, it kind of runs the gamut between, like, really serious research and then research that's pretty serious in terms of the math involved and in trying to, you know, understand what's relevant in the signal and pulling that out as a meaningful thing, but then use it to play a game or to, you know, do something a bit more creative with. And then also recently I think somebody – somebody uh, put OpenBCI on an alpaca. Uh, and, and then the most recent thing that I've seen on Twitter that is the, the thing that's sort of uh, a standout is somebody made a remote-controlled vibrator uh, with with OpenBCI. You had to concentrate in order for the vibration to, to start up.
1: That's amazing. Joel, just to give listeners an idea of, of what... Uh, the OpenBCI device that you make looks like. Kind of describe it and like where it goes and how you actually control it, um, the the training process that's
2: involved. Yeah, sure. So, OpenBCI is a small circuit board. It's about uh, two and a half inches across, shaped like an octagon. Um, And it has input pins on one side, and it's a radio control device. So, we have a a dongle that you can plug into a USB port that you communicate to. We try to keep the device wireless for, for, you know, for two reasons, one for safety, because we don't want people to plug themselves into the mains. Mm -hmm. And also, um, anything you plug into a computer or even something that's powered by the wall or whatever, there's always going to be power line noise. And the signal we're trying to read is, is really tiny. So any, any way you can reduce noise is the way to go. Um, we also have uh, a product that's called the Ultra Cortex, which is a uh, 3D printed uh, electrode headset. And the Open DCI board fits right into this on the back. So we can, we can create a standalone device that you can then put on your head. The, Electra, the, the Ultra Cortex is kind of shaped like a plastic mesh with nodes that um, uh, interface with your scalp. Through your hair or on your bare scalp and your forehead, and so you would uh, you would size the ultra cortex to fit your head, and then you can put it on. And we we have software that runs on a computer that interfaces with the OpenBCI system, and then we're also software agnostic. So we already had drivers built for us to plug into um, uh, some pretty impressive uh, software that does if you will like interpretation of the EEG signal. Um OpenVibe is one where you can build your own classifiers, which is what we're, uh, the algorithms are called that uh you know tease out the meaningful information from EEG.
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's really interesting to th- and, and I like the idea that people are coming up with their own uses for this uh technology. You know, do you think um that e- can this negate the need in most cases for you know the next step which is which is I mean quite literally drilling a hole in someone's skull and putting in a, a neuro implant?
2: Um you know the answer is no. I don't think so. Uh, the EEG is uh not easy. I mean I think that one of the things that we are providing uh by um, you know making open BCI and providing this low cost, high quality tool. Uh, is the chance for somebody to figure out how to make, uh, you know, the best ambulatory EEG, if you will. Right? You, you're going to be walking around with a EEG on your head. Um, you, the noise that you're creating, literally just by moving and walking around, is in the same frequency domain that you're looking at to find EEG signals. So EEG is really not easy. I mean, I think that the success of a commercial device like Muse, for example, kind of hinges on their angle of trying to create something that's got a meditative bent. I don't know if your customers are familiar with Muse, but it's a, it's a commercial headband that you can get. that pairs with your phone and you can do meditative practice with. Um, and of course, when you're meditating, you're not moving. So you're bound to be getting a fairly decent signal. Um, so first of all, there's there's a lot of noise in the EEG and you can't do as much in the world as a like just a person wandering around doing stuff with EEG as you can with something more invasive. That's really the, the biggest impediment right. to so there's room, there's room EEG for both. solving this problem.
0: Well, there's room for both, which is good because, I mean, most people, you know, probably aren't going to line up to... to have a neuro implant, you know, unless they absolutely need such a thing. Right. But the kind of you know devices you're talking about have many applications um, that people may want that aren't perhaps you know medically necessary. Um, so it's good that there's there's multiple options. You know, what's driven? In the, it seems like in the last few years there's been a tremendous surge in technologies around, you know, including neuro implants, but also um EEG, uh, uh other other uh, uh sort of neurotech. Um and a lot of the ideas that we talked about, you know, for many years and we're in the pages of science fiction are starting to become reality. What's driving that?
2: Uh I think that there's there's two factors, major factors, and there's a lot of small factors sort of scattered about. Uh Moore's Law definitely has a lot to do with this. The fact that um you can put so much more into such a small place um is huge. It's a huge driver for all kinds of innovation, not just in biomedical sciences, but biomed is definitely, you know, reaping the reward of Moore's Law. Um, I think to to a large degree, all sensing uh is a real, is benefiting greatly from Moore's Law. Um and also beyond that I would say, you know, this sort of catch all phrase of like, you know, big data um our ability to be able to um not only hold and control large amounts of data but also to process it in a a way that can be timely and meaningful you know what i mean it's like you we there's there's when you do eeg if you're running an eeg and you're trying to store the data you're getting an enormous amount of data you're, I mean, I I can do tests. I test the hardware. I you know I I kind of play around with it myself, and you know I'm getting gigabyte files you know easy, and that that's you know it's, we can we can handle that we can manage that. But because we can is also why. And then machine learning, artificial intelligence, all of these advances in the way that we're able to um, create software and algorithms that essentially do a lot of work for us in terms of uh, deciding what is meaningful and, and uh, you know, uh, customizing to a certain, um, you know, set of parameters because, we you know, we're all original organisms, right? So my EEG is different than your EEG. And if we're go- both going to try to do some concentration, you know, let's say brain biofeedback thing, um, the software that is going to be running that has to be flexible enough to uh, train with you to know what your concentration looks like in an EEG, and also mine. You, 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 know, if you, you can't just have one piece of software that gets made for one person and built from the ground up again um, for another yeah. person. So that's, I think that's, those are the, really the two major factors that are making it all well possible.
0: Uh, you've just proven uh, uh, the idea that, hey, we think alike uh, is completely wrong. <laughs> Thank you so much. This has been this has been great.
2: You're so welcome. My God, it's been it's, it's totally fun. I'm psyched to be a part of your uh, podcast.
1: Thanks so much, Joel. This has been great to hear what you've been up to. And uh, you've had a very interesting trajectory in your life. So uh, I'm excited to see see where that trajectory leads.
2: I'll totally keep you updated on all my exploits.
1: Please do. Thanks so much, Joel. Hope to see you at a Maker Faire soon.
2: Okay, great. See you. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, David.
0: You know, the the kinds of technologies and applications, I think, that people are experimenting with right now using the kind of external biosensors that, that Joel's making available, you know, those kinds of applications aren't necessarily new. But what I think is really exciting about it is that, you know, anybody almost can can develop these kinds of applications and, and pursue experiments, you know, in their garage, you know, for less than $100, which is fairly amazing. That's what I like about it is kind of this
1: merge of art and technology. And that's what they're doing. I mean, you see, I've seen really cool things with a little heart sensor that they've made. It looks kind of like a little silhouette of a heart with a wire sticking out of it, and you can attach it to anything. And so people put it in their hoodies and they have LEDs that are kind of broadcasting their emotional states and things like that. So just the, the way this opens up op- opportunities for experimentation kind of reminds me of the early computer revolution where once computers got cheap enough to get into the hands of people who were creative and artistic, you saw this whole new way of using technology that surprised the uh, developers of that technology.
0: Absolutely, and I, and I think that... Um, you know, besides these sort of fun and artistic pursuits using this technology, there are real applications around prosthetics and, and people who are locked in um, and making interfaces that, that may not be quite as good or quite as high resolution as medical device companies um, can offer. They're, they're still very powerful and they're better than having nothing. Um, And, you know, as William Gibson said, the street finds its own uses for things. I think it'll be really interesting when these technologies get into the hands of people who really need them the most, but historically have been unable to afford them. Thanks for listening to For Future Reference. I'm David Peskovitz. And I'm Mark Frauenfelder. For more
1: information about Institute for the Future and to subscribe to the For Future Reference podcast,
0: visit iftf.org. For Future Reference is underwritten by a grant from the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. With production support from Parker Yesco and BMP Audio, Greg Fleischett composed the music.